Okay, it's uh, 11.01 and we still have uh, participants uh, joining us. So let's go ahead and get started. Thank you all so much for registering around this topic of very high interest and, and just visiting with communities. We always learn so much from our community leaders and great dialogue. We're learning a lot from you and we're so excited to be able to share the experts in this space that really are at the top level of making these decisions on the questions you're asking us. So we're thrilled today to bring to you the CEO and president of the Council for Finance Development Agencies, Toby Ridner. And Toby is just a true expert in all things small business, public-private partnership, and really looking at that financing component of building our communities. Um, he's worked very closely with Cindy Stewart over the years on retail as a catalyst for economic development, for TIF financing and all the guidelines around that. And certainly in our space with a focus in retail commercial real estate, then that public-private partnership is so critically important to making deals happen that might not happen otherwise. And it's a winning scenario for all the players involved. If you can take a new project and generate new tax revenue that would not exist, but for that public participation, and then ultimately be able to make that happen where the city wins, the private developer wins, and it creates a, a sense of place for that community. So the public-private partnership is just continuing to grow in interest, and that's certainly the case today as we continue to navigate the impacts of COVID-19. So this webinar is being recorded. Please go ahead and plug in your questions throughout the course of this discussion. Um, and we will address those either at the end or throughout. Uh, we have a few questions that all of you have shared with us over the last two to three months that we have assembled and, uh, and we're going to get a chance to ask Toby those today. But definitely go ahead and plug in your specific questions as well. And we will get to those throughout the course of this one hour webinar. Um, after this is over, you will receive an email with the recording. And we're also going to provide to you a tool. Uh, it's a four way that cities can help their small businesses, uh, just a PDF resource that you can use. And, and again, please just keep us informed on the topics that you want to hear most about. And this is something you've asked us a lot of questions about. So uh, without further ado, what I'd like to do is go ahead and turn it over and introduce Jen Gregory. Jen is the president of Downtown Strategies, and she worked with the Greater Startville Development Partnership as a CEO for 10 years and completely revitalized downtown Startful, Mississippi. We're so pleased to have her with us at Retail Strategies, running downtown strategies. And she's also our in-house public policy just guru and knows everything about uh, that space, which is critically important right now as we're seeing a lot of federal funding that is uh, coming to our communities. So with that, I'll go ahead and turn it over to Jen to give us a little bit of a recap of our last month's webinar with Clarence Anthony, the CEO of National National League of Cities and the dialogue that he shared and how that has led into what we're going to discuss today. So Jen, go ahead and give us a little recap there. Okay, great. Thanks, Lacey and Cindy and Toby. It's a pleasure to be with you all as well. And good morning, everyone. Um, like Lacey said, you know, we, we had a great opportunity last month to visit with the CEO of National League of Cities, and we learned a lot. We learned that this American Rescue Plan funding that is coming to cities and counties across the country, really for the first time ever, um, cities will specifically receive a federal appropriation to help rebuild and recover from this global pandemic. And so uh, a lot of the discussion was focused on how should those funds be used? How can they be used? And what should city leaders really focus on when they start building their plan um, for rebuilding and for recovering from this pandemic? You know, a question that we keep receiving, and uh, I don't know that any of us have the perfect answer just yet, is how can these funds be used? Um, we are expecting an update from the Treasury in the next 10 days or so uh, that should provide some more information. We do know that those cities that have a population of over 50,000 should be receiving their appropriation in the next two weeks or so. And those communities with a population of less than 50,000 uh, should be receiving their funding around mid-June. So now is definitely the time to be taking in all of these resources and beginning to make plans. But when we do look at 
the permitted uses that are laid out in the bill for the American Rescue Plan for cities and counties, the very first bullet point that is listed is to support industries negatively affected by the pandemic, specifically small businesses. Um, we know that there are a lot of funding opportunities right now that will go directly to small businesses through the Paycheck Protection Program, EIDL, and some of these other new resources. But what we are really hearing more than ever um, is that cities can take a big role in helping to not only support their small businesses with funding, but with technical assistance and training. And we're gonna talk a lot about that today. So we're thrilled to have all of you. Uh, wanna point out that we do have a couple of resources on our website at retailstrategies.com. You can watch that recording of the webinar that we had with National League of Cities, as well as download our summary of the American Rescue Plan. But now it's my pleasure to introduce my colleague, Cindy Stewart. She's the Vice President of Community Engagement at Retail Strategies, and she brings with her over 20 years of experience in community development, retail real estate advocacy, and public policy, where she previously served as a senior executive at the International Council of Shopping Centers. We're thrilled to have Cindy on our team. She is a wonderful partner, and she brings a lot of contacts with her as well. Uh, she and Toby have worked together for many years, and so now I'm going to turn it over to Cindy to introduce our special guest. Cindy? Thanks, Jen. Appreciate it so much. It's a pleasure to be with all of you today, and you're in for a real treat I've had the pleasure of serving on numerous panels with Toby and he's always got something worthwhile to say and some, you're gonna get some important takeaways. I have all the confidence in the world in you, Toby. So Toby, as Lacey said, serves as the president and CEO for the Council for Development Finance Agencies, as we refer to CDFA, which is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to strengthen the efforts of state and local development finance agencies, which is really a mouthful. I think Toby can clarify some of that for us, but what they are really focused on is fostering job creation and economic growth with tax exempt and other public private partnership finance programs. So that's in a nutshell what CDFA does. It's a lot more complicated than that, I'm sure Toby will tell you. So Toby, we do know that COVID-19 has had a staggering effect on businesses large and small. And so that has somewhat changed the focus of state and local development finance agencies. So rather than being focused on job creation and economic growth, it's a little more focused on recovery and survival of existing businesses. Um, so has that really changed the focus of CDFA to be able to respond to those needs of the finance agencies? Well, thank you first for uh, inviting me and Lacey and Jen, thank you for the kind introductions. This is normally reversed. Um, you know, Cindy, in years past, I'd have been asking you to speak at our webinar about all this stuff. So um, I appreciate this uh, sort of weird transition in our professional careers. And um, also thank you for letting me be here and be part of this. Hi everybody, I'm coming to you from Columbus, Ohio. Somebody just pinged me and told me I should smile more. Uh, I don't know what to tell you, but I'm about to talk about finance for the next hour. so. You tell me to smile more at the end and, and we'll see how we did there. But um, yeah, I mean, my organization, CDFA, which I've been part of for 17 years and we've been around now 39 years, next year we'll celebrate our 40th anniversary, really just focuses on the way in which we um, unlock capital in communities. How do we remove barriers to capital and allow for capital to flow? That could be, oh, someone said OHIO. Uh, that could be um, coming from uh, big infrastructure projects. So you've got broadband or you've got water or you've got roads, br bridges and sewers. How do you unlock capital for that? And it can be all the way down to an entrepreneur who might need $50,000 to commercialize their business or to move into a storefront or whatever it might be. So we look at the whole gamut of the development finance landscape, focusing on that one point that I made, which is removing barriers. So sort of take that as like the, the item in the back of your head, removing the barriers to capital. Why isn't the capital flowing? And if you remove that barrier, then capital will flow to that need. And so you asked the question, has it changed CDFA? Strangely, it hasn't. Um, it's actually just reinforced our longstanding uh, methodology that sort of the key to figuring out how cities and communities can move forward is by looking at the flow of capital, looking at the flow of wealth and, and capital absorption. And why don't we see investment in certain areas or why don't we see investment in types of people or types of businesses, and it's because of that barrier. So it hasn't really changed us from the viewpoint of as an organization. 
what it has made us feel, and we're very grateful for this, is very important right now. And prior to the pandemic, um, people kind of took finance as like the last guy to invite to the party. You invited the planner, you invited the economic developer, you invited the mayor, you invited everybody else, and you came up with a grandioso plan. And then someone said, how the heck are we going to pay for this? And then they called us. And so what this has done in reverse is it's actually brought us to the table first saying, we got issues. How are we going to pay for all this? And it's sort of positioned finance, as, which I speak to as like a living thing, positioned finance at the front of the discussion as opposed to in the back. In terms of what it's done in communities on, from our perspective is um, the impacts have been pretty monumental, right? You're seeing major small businesses struggle. But what you're also seeing is um, if you look at the lifeline of projects, you're seeing redevelopment projects have to extend. You know, they had expected leases, they had expected users and they expected human beings to park and all of that stuff. If it was a 10 month timeline, it's now an 18 month timeline because now nobody's really sure when it will come back and if it will come back in the same way. You've seen these weird tertiary effects in cities that I don't know that you could ever plan for. Um, what do you do when 10,000 workers are no longer going into your downtown, but they're working from home? And where they pay taxes is where they work. And so you're now starting to see a year into this. And this is what we said way back in April is that it's not the impact right now. We'll get over that. It's the impact in 18 months because now tax, tax revenues and tax flows are changing. So Sandy and our, our days, like if you did a TIF district in downtown and now no one's coming to it, there's no revenues coming in. And therefore you're now seeing potentially those districts not having the revenues come in to pay on the debt service. So what we're looking at now in communities and we're looking at this from the entrepreneur to the big development project is whether or not assumptions from the past still hold true. And that's kind of been for me the biggest, the biggest thing communities will have to look at. I did a webinar maybe four months ago and there were 1500 mayors and city managers on it because they're starting to look at now this impacts down the road, not the impacts from like the immediate stress. And say there was, for us, there's been three stages of the pandemic. The first one was, um, and part of my language, I don't hope I don't offend anybody with it, but it was like this holy shit, like what do we do? Um, this is a nightmare, this is scary. Everybody's locked in their houses and it was stabilize whatever you can, help whoever you can, get stimulus, you know, get uh, direct payments out, get whatever you can to stabilize current economy. PPP came along with that. So like maybe people would keep their employees, even though restaurants were closed and service industry was closed. And you think about like small impact. My housekeeper couldn't come into my house for six months, right? I wouldn't let her in my house. Well, she lives off of cleaning houses. Magnify her by, you know, 30 million. There's 30 million microenterprises in the U.S. She's a microenterprise. You magnify that and it becomes a real a real challenge for to stabilize. So that was stage one. Second stage was, you know, sort of like this recover, like this faux recovery, right? Like, well, we're through that immediate crisis and we're starting to get people moving around. But I think that's where people started to realize you had to refinance debt. You had to look at the way existing debt is being repaid. You had to go in and look at borrowers businesses and say, well, what's your future going to look like? If you're not going to be around, we got to figure out how to liquidate that, whatever this is, and, and return it. And then you saw a lot of the cool stuff happen, like looking at regulatory. You know, how many of you now drink beers out in, in the gardens in your communities? And you couldn't do that before, right? Like you couldn't carry around a beer. How many of you order beer online now or you can get it delivered to your house? That seems like small. Yeah, right. Like I have, of course. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like small stuff. But think about the change in our economy. We were so worried about the gig economy dying and the gig economy actually picked up because now there was a guy who could make money off of delivering beer to me at my house. Changes everything. It changes the entire outlook on your local economy. That's where you saw some really cool innovations. And then now we're looking at stage three, which is we got to get back to business and we got to get back to business like pedal to the metal, meaning investment, long-range thinking, the whole world has changed, cities will change forever, school systems will change forever, little league soccer programs will change forever, retail, I mean the reason we're on one of these calls, will change forever. It may never go back to what it was before. So now all this cool innovation is coming along, like how do we make 
how do we change that and how do we go with the flow on it? And I just think it's kind of a cool time and we'll get into some of the resources available here in your future questions, but I hope that was a good starting spot. Oh, that's great. So you, you touched on uh, the small businesses and how some of them really went into heavy decline right at the very beginning, were closed for months on end, and some of them have started to recover from that initial decline. But we know that others are still lagging way behind where they were, you know, two years ago. And some of them recovered, but then they've had subsequent declines. And we sort of touched on this. There's a lot of, you know, financing programs, a, you know, grants, things that are out there. So where do these small businesses turn? And where do the local governments who are trying to assist them turn, you know, to find the best place for assistance and guidance to get through this process and find the funds that are available to help them, you know, recover? Yeah. Uh, for frame of reference, the last 14 months has been the largest expenditure in the history of the federal government for economic development. So when you think about that, um, and then this proposed new infrastructure bill would obviously be the largest expenditure in the history of the government for economic development. But just in the past 12 months through stimuluses, we've seen so much money infused into the economic development world, this sort of amorphous economic development world, we call it. Um, so we got to put frame of reference. The federal government is effectively drinking from a fire hose. You take an agency like the EDA, which I love, and it's such an important federal agency, their appropriation, you know, quadrupled, more than quadrupled in uh, one day. They went from a small $400, $400 million organization to having $3 billion of allocation to get out. Now, they didn't hire 50 new people to get that money out the door. It's still the same people that have to do it. So it is a very complicated federal landscape right now. And we're doing the best we can, obviously, to get you know, the staffing and line up the guidance. And I know we're going to talk about the direct payments to cities here in a second. But so I'd say I'm not I'm honestly not promoting. But if you want to know about everything that's going on with the stimulus bills and all the federal resources, go to our website. We track every diamond dollar that's been appropriate, EDA, EPA, HUD, USDA, Department of Treasury, CDFI fund. We have our COVID resource center. We have every federal program that's being appropriated from PPP to um, even the new one I'm gonna talk about here, SSBCI. Um, so check that out first. I would not rely on, and I hope there's, I don't make anybody upset here from the federal government. I would not rely on the federal agencies. They don't have the manpower. They can't train you on what an EDA revolving loan fund is right now. They can barely return your call. They are so busy. You know, the USDA doesn't have time to train you on an intermediary lending program. Um, they don't have time to teach you about, you know, WIFIA and grants for solar panels and, and housing sta stabilization. A, they're a new, new administration transitioning staff, but B, they just don't have the people to be able to give you that kind of education. One shameless plug, we have a thing called our Federal Financing Webinar Series. It's eight times a year. You log on for two hours and you learn about what's going on with the feds. And it's, here's a program. Um, for instance, WIFIA just put out, which is water infrastructure, just put out a, um, a notice of funding availability, I think like two days ago. And that's for water infrastructure projects. We'll do a whole thing on that during our Federal Financing Webinar Series. Um, the other thing I'd say to look at, and um, this sort of goes to the question as well, is um, know your federal agencies, but really know which ones can actually engage in you. If you don't have resources to make match, don't bother trying to go after funding sources that might be used but require a match. Don't even, don't even mess with it. Try to go to the places which don't require match or where they're allowing sub-allocations through CDFIs or development finance agencies or other entities that you may be able to sub-allocate out of. Um, and then the last thing I'll mention is look at your segments of your economy. So food sector was hit really hard. Retail sector was hit really hard. Seasonal sector was hit really hard. Um, a lot of communities rely on seasonal like tourism and that was hit really, really hard because you can't travel anywhere um, in, in large groups. Um, the other one that was hit really hard that's hard to see is manufacturing and it's, it's, it's sort of down the value chain, right? You've got the vendors who provide the raw materials and they can't get the raw materials to the manufacturer who can't produce whatever it is they produce. And so you're seeing huge backlogs on, 
on things. And anecdotally, I ordered a um, soft top for my my uh, partner's Jeep, and it's weeks and weeks back ordered because they can't fulfill the orders because they don't have the raw material to make soft tops for Jeeps, which is just crazy to think about, right? We don't we don't think about that downstream element of all this. So I would look if you're a regional group or a big city, look at the downstream vendors and what they might be needing. And it might be things that they that you never even thought of. So that's one thing I'd look at. And then I wanna mention, we were really involved in the in um, both the Trump and the Biden administration. Uh, we've been sort of trusted allies to just provide guidance. Um, when President Biden took office, we started briefing the White House and the administration on ways in which to support, support small businesses and, and kind of rejuvenate that sector of the economy. Congress did pass the State Small Business Credit Initiative as part of the rescue plan. It's a $10 billion piece of legislation that we authored um, and it will give um, money to states that then will go out uh, in the form of either direct lending, loan participation, loan guarantee or, or early state venture capital to small businesses. It's $10 billion divided by 50, states and territories, so 56 or 54 different entities. If you're not aware of SSBCI, you should be, and I'm happy to talk more about it as we go along, but wanted to mention that's a big one that's uh, authorized right now. Well, Toby, I wanna thank you for your work on that on behalf of all the cities and states that we that we work with, because you you did author that and, and 10 billion's a, a substantial amount of money that can certainly help our- Hey, hey we asked for- we asked for three billion and they gave us 10, so we'll take it. <laughs> when, that never happens. <laughs> That's fantastic. And to your point, you have a phenomenal website and I get your newsletter. And what I like about it is it's, it's not uh, just vague recommendations, it's actual case studies case study after case study of how um, you are breaking down barriers for capital and um, in a lot of different ways. And um, I love how you assemble all that. And so thank you for your work on that because it can be completely overwhelming to even know where to go uh, with these resources. And to that point, I think for some of our community leaders that they say, yes, absolutely. We've wanted this for years and now there's finally funding to support these initiatives. Then, um, you know, when you look at the breakdown of, of what you talked about with the SSBCI, the small, state small business, um, what is it? The state small business credit initiative. Is that right? Yeah, that's a horrible name. I tried, to, I tried to get the name changed. I couldn't get it changed. <laughs> So forgive me for stumbling through that, but either way, a great program with a lot of funding. But uh, when you look at that program that you've set up, the $28 billion in grants to the hard-hit restaurants and bars, the other $16 billion in grants for live performance venues, such as theaters and museums, you're looking at all these different funding sources, and then you also have the um, emergency disaster loan, right? So you're looking at all these different things, and what would be your recommendation to community leaders that are trying to establish either a loan program or a grant program and determining how that they can stack or leverage these funds in a beneficial way? Is there a certain formula or a recommendation that you found that works for community leaders to administer these funds to, uh, to support their small businesses? Yeah, it's such a hard question. I mean, you know, keep in mind, nothing changed in the city. They still have the same amount of staff. They still have the same levels of expertise. Uh, you all have applied for federal funds before. You know what kind of an absolute nightmare it is. None of that changed, right? And so what you're really asking cities and towns is that in the middle of a pandemic and a crisis that we never could have imagined, oh, by the way, here's um, a truckload of federal resources. First, you gotta flush through and figure out what it is and if it applies to your community or your project. B, if you even have status to apply, because it's not for cities and counties, it's for businesses and it's for shuttered venues and nonprofits. And then how you actually work with those potential recipients of those resources to make application or to go through the process and then it just becomes almost overwhelming. So I, I, I respect it and I know how hard it is. So my, my recommendation is this, this is gonna maybe be a little cavalier, but like you either go all in or you don't, you know, you, you either commit to going after these resources or you will be left behind because there will be places that do it really, really well. 
and they're going to go, they're going to go really hardcore for Shuttered Venue is a really good example of one. I know of at least 10 cities that are actively running at that program right now. They want to get resources for Shuttered Venue. Um, when you look at restaurants and bar, re the restaurant uh, program, that's going to probably be dominated, I hate to say it, by big cities because they're going to have the resources to go and get their big restaurant tours, right? The guys that own eight, 10 restaurants in the community or franchisees, and they're gonna be able to go and get them and be real active because they're sophisticated you know, owners. So my advice is either go all in, like hire a professional on your team whose job is just to go after these resources. And then also consider your partners out there. And, and this is really good. Um, CDFIs, development finance agencies, Lots of nonprofits, this is what they do for a living. They work in this space. So engage them and say, we will be, we'll sign your letters. We'll, we'll do whatever we can to get this in front of the Senator or in front of the Congressperson um, to help really push um, getting involved in it. And then the third thing I'd say is you might need to hire professionals. Uh, the, there are people that write grants all day long in their sleep. Um, we do it, we help people. I'm not suggesting us, I mean, we do it very limited, but. There are groups like Sustainable Development Strategies. They will write your grant applications for you for a fee. They actually take a VIG, like they take a tiny little bit of the grant winnings, but who cares? Because they're better at writing grants than you'll ever be, and they can be a really good resource for you. So that's, that's kind of like three things I think about. The other thing I think about is um, I, tell, I tell cities this all the time. It doesn't really, ah, I gotta be careful here. It doesn't really matter what it says in the description of the program. Go call them. Like it may have some esoteric language in there, like the shuttered venue program. It's hard to interpret if you just read the website. Um, that, what is it? SBA website or whoever's administering that. It doesn't make a lot of sense because it's all in like federal jargon. Just call the SBA and say, here's my project. We'll make it fit in the program, you know, and they might go, I'm not sure it fits. Just keep pushing it. I mean, there's so much flexibility. These are the most flexible programs we've ever had. Um, and just, I would say, just really go hard about trying to get your, program, you know, your project to fit into it. And then in your community, it's probably time to start, you know, putting your mask on and going back out to the businesses, giving them a sheet that says, are you taking advantage of PPP? Are you taking advantage of shuttered venue? Are you taking advantage of this? And look, folks, like, we're in the modern world. You got to be accountable. If your businesses aren't going to go after all these resources, there ain't much more you can do for them. You did your job. So it's about going out and just leaving that flyer on their desk and saying, we want you to stay here, but you got to be aggressive and you got to go after it. And I think that's kind of um, kind of the way I've been in, instructing cities to, to be really aggressive about this. You either get yours or someone else is going to. And that's kind of how it's going to work under the, these programs. Well, I love that idea of, of just listing all the programs and as community leaders going and, and talking to your business owners and saying, what do you want? What do you have? What do you need? And how do we stack these and assemble them you know, on your behalf? I, I think that is so important. And what Jen has continued to remind me of throughout the course of this is these funds are there and they are intended to be used. And so there yeah. are, you know, there is the... Uh, the bill has the criteria and the American Rescue Plan funds, for instance, they have, you know, the bill has the criteria written out and we just continue to receive questions. About, <coughs> well, what happens when we receive these funds? Jen just gave the, the timeline. And then we, you know, a lot of community leaders right now are working on their master plan of, of how, what they're going to do with it. And there's so much of fatigue from the CARES Act funding and fear of this funding that potentially additional regulation or reporting will be laid on them after the funds have been spent and they run the risk of perhaps not being reimbursed or an audit where they're in violation or, or they've spent them the right way, but the reporting to prove that is um, so burdensome on the their internal staff that it's hard to keep up with. So that's some of the feedback that we're hearing. And what are what's your pulse on the additional regulation and guidelines that might be coming out? Will there be more? And if so, what's that going to look like? And I, I think you hit on a great point of a lot of these funds for restaurants and bars and live performance venues will probably go to the major metropolitan areas. Um, the majority of community 
agencies that we work with and probably you work with are um, under 50,000. And so they're the ones that really have to hustle and have a lot of questions around this. So what are you hearing as far as the potential additional layering of regulation and reporting that might come out around the ARPA? Yeah, it's it's such a hard it's such a hard landscape. Um, this is just me and my I'm, I'm going off the reservation a second. Like from a public policy perspective, and I know Cindy, you did this a long time in Washington D.C. You know this. It's like quick a quick program with not a ton not a ton of thought put into how it's going to be administered. Like yeah, here's uh, 28 billion dollars. Who the hell's going to administer this? What's the guidance? What's the timeline? Like what staff at Treasury is going to put this in place? What people at SBA? And then they go, oh yeah, well, we'll, we'll get you answers on that. I mean, that's been the whole situation. And I don't blame them because it's the federal government trying to react and the federal government is not a reactive in enterprise. Like it's not, that's, that's not what that's they're good at. But so I do think they're trying really hard. I think they're working really, really hard at the federal agencies and I give them a ton of credit for how hard they're working. Having said that, this, this is, uh, this is uh, I'm not a lawyer. But um, my professional advice is, who cares? They're not going to come back at you. It's not reasonable. There is so much resource being put out there that take um, the direct payments to cities. So you go and get aggressive. You put your plan together. You get your payment in, in, in two weeks. And you put it out. You put it into projects. Do you think the Biden administration or the Treasury Department really has the resources and are going to want to come at you? for doing something to save and secure your city, that's, it's not really founded in reality. Like, what is it, 19,000 cities are eligible for this program? You know, all about, you know, above or below 50,000, they're not coming after Tiffin, Ohio. They're just not doing it. And I might, a lawyer's probably gonna kill me on this and say, why would you give that kind of advice? I don't know, I've been doing this for 21 years and they're not. They're not going to come after Tiffin, Ohio, who put $5 million in a water sewer system or in a small business revolving loan fund or in a K-12 educational uh, revolve, you know, uh, revolving fund. They're just not going to do it because the money is supposed to go into projects. It's not supposed to sit on shelves. Furthermore, if you just decide to you know, shore up your operating budget, they're not going to come after you for that either because your city's struggling and you can make the case that we didn't have tax rolls for the last 12 months. And if we don't, you know, continue to pay our debt service or invest in our police department or whatever it might be, we're not going to remain strong. So I think you should do, my advice is always this, plan for audits, right? Like make your plan like you're an auditor. Go find an auditor who's a real like pain in the butt, who's just like that person in your community who questions everything and give them your plan and say, what would you, what would you not like about this plan from an audit perspective? And they might go, well, what's your accountability? Or if you sub-allocate to that nonprofit, how are you going to track them? Or how are you going to monitor them? Or if you directly lend into businesses, how will you make your credit decisions? And what is your structure for how you'll guide the fund beyond you know, the two-year period? And if that auditor says, hey, man, you're answering all the questions really good, then you can plan for a federal audit. Like that's not impossible. So we've been telling states like on SSBCI and on this program, on the direct payments cities, plan for an auditor, like plan for an auditor to bust you down. And if you can answer all those questions and have rationale behind what you're doing, then you're good. I'm gonna go back to my other one, which is if you're a small community, hire a professional. I'm, I'm dead serious. Hire a planning firm or, a, or an intermediary nonprofit, someone that has resources that can come in and really quickly put a great plan together. Um, I just think small cities struggle so much with um, capacity and there's gonna be a constant re reporting requirement under this federal, under the direct payments, just kind of plan for all that and professionals can really help you do that. And um, it's probably worth paying for it, quite frankly. I don't know if that answered the question, but. Um, no, absolutely. Plan for an audit and plan for reporting. And if your staff's at capacity, then hire a professional to help. That makes yeah. perfect sense. Mm -hmm. well, I, I, think, I think there was a conversation about combinations as well. Like can, can cities come together and work together on these funds? Um, I'd like to think that could happen, but I really don't believe it will. I mean, we're all selfish, like in our communities, we're going to get ours and use it our way. 
But if there is an opportunity, like, you know, out in Nebraska, they have these economic development districts, these big cogs, right, that um, are official, but it would be really neat if some of those groups came together and thought about, like, maybe the Middle Ohio Regional Planning Commission comes together and says, why doesn't everybody put a, put a little bit of their money in for a regional broadband system or for a regional sewer system upgrade? Like, that would be kind of neat. And I'd like to see some of that come out of this. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, um, I couldn't agree with you more, Toby, about, um, you know, the fact that these funds are intended to be used and there are 19,000 municipalities, not counting the counties. Um, and so, you know, um, the money needs to be spent. And, and as long as these cities can can provide a reasonable accounting for, for why they spent the money that they did, they need to, to go ahead and get moving on that. And as Lacey alluded to earlier, you know, we are hearing really from every city that we talk to, well, we're just waiting for more information. We're just waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. And we understand that, you know, like Lacey mentioned, the CARES Act was really challenging for cities, primarily because the states were controlling the use of all of those funds. Right. But with ARP, you know, that money's going directly to cities. And, and I think, you know, from our perspective, um, the bill does provide for permitted uses, you know, supporting small business and industries that have been negatively impacted by the pandemic, uh, you know, uh, replacing lost revenue and operating accounts, infrastructure, and providing premium pay to essential workers. And that's, that's it. There you go. And so as it relates to small businesses, you know, there, there are so many funds in, that can provide grants and, and even low interest loans to small businesses. But what about training? You know, this is something that that we have really seen is that um, small businesses that have received enough money to pay their rent, they're still struggling because they're not online. And as consumer behavior has changed, we're spending more money online. Um, we've seen that small businesses really need to kind of uh, modernize a little bit and, and implement some omni-channel retail strategy. So um, any thoughts on that in terms of technical assistance and training? And, and what is your recommendation to cities that um, we've told them, go spend this money if they're wanting to support their small businesses? What's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, well, it's, it's amazing. That question is like everywhere right now. Um, you know, there are cities... So I come to you from Columbus, Ohio. There are cities like my city. We're not struggling, folks. Like we're busting at the seams. We have people flocking to move to central Ohio. Our home values are through the roof. I sold my home. I put my home on the market two Fridays ago. It sold in 12 hours and I bought a new place the very next day. That's how quick the market is, right? It's not. So there are places that are doing really well. So my first thing to, to, to make that make sense is there's a um, there's something happening in our country where people are coming from the edges now and they're coming back to middle America. I've had friends that have moved back to Cincinnati. I'm from Cleveland and I know people that have moved back to Cleveland. I know people that have moved back to Iowa and back to Minnesota and places where, you know, they were out in Baltimore and they were in Boston and they were in DC and they were in LA and San Francisco. And now they're like, I don't need to be here because I can work from anywhere. So if you're a city that's on the cusp or if you're a great place to live, you have a chance to rebrand yourself from a workforce perspective and to say, we've got an amazing place to work. So what do you do? Invest in broadband, you know, get your broadband and make it amazing. Like you don't need fancy downtowns, you need broadband, right? People will find where they wanna live. Go back to the old school, whatever happened to vocationals and community colleges and the places where they could teach those skills we need welders right now. The president is going to pass a $2 trillion infrastructure bill. Do you think we'll need more of me or more welders? We're going to need more welders, a hell of a lot more welders, and people that know how to do those. In some communities, the trades are like booming right now. You can't hire a contractor to put a driveway in. You can't hire a contractor to drywall. So there's going to be this movement afoot to sort of go back and Let's start to teach people how to do those things again. And I think it's awesome. So if I had this money in a city, I might look at my schools and say, how can we go and teach these skills? How can we invest for the next two, three years on these skills? Because we're going to need them as we grow because we're a great place. We're going to put broadband in so anybody can move here. We're going to put affordable housing in so anyone can move here. And then we're going to teach people how to do trade skills, how to brew beer, how to create, you know, that kind of economy that stays even during a crisis. So 
Um, I know it's not the best answer in the world, but I do think um, we've got to start thinking about kind of how you build that life cycle. We have this chance. Everything's new, right? Everything's different now. So we have a chance to make new things. The last thing I will mention is looking at the hardest hit sectors. African-Americans and African-American owned businesses were disproportionately damaged and harmed and, and perhaps um, destroyed during the pandemic. One in five black businesses will go out of business. If we don't hone in on the parts of our economy and the parts of our communities that were most hard hit, they're going to continue to regress. And so we've got to kind of really focus in on those spaces. Someone asked a question about all this stuff in different languages. Yeah, hire an interpreter and rewrite it all in, in different languages. Philadelphia has done that. Philadelphia has their loan programs translated in 11 languages, 11 different languages. Like that's really cool. And that's a way to connect with the you know multilingual part of your community. I don't know if I answered the question on that one. I kind of got on a rampage. No, that's all. Gosh, that's a lot of great information you shared. And I, I do want to, one of the questions that was asked is, is directly to the point that you just made about how do they determine which businesses to help? I mean, there is this idea in some camps that say, you know, that there are certain businesses that are just going to close regardless. And are you throwing good money after bad, right? That's the question. So can you speak to that or advise on yeah. setting up programs for really, you know, uh, just frequent, um, just really struggling business? Is that a good place to put it? I got a great answer to that. And I'm going to get tomatoes thrown at me if this was a live event. Listen, folks, stop giving out grants. It's as simple as that. You give grants to businesses and they have no reason to pay it back or to create a bit now. I mean, not, not like back a year ago, like grants was keeping people alive. We get that. We're to the point where you need to have a business plan. You need to have sales. You need to be able to show your future. If you're a business that relies on 100 people being in your establishment every hour, it's not going to be that way for a while. So can you survive on 25 people being in there? If you're a bar or a restaurant, I know we keep using those, but think about other, you know, other examples. Um, I don't know, it's going to make me maybe sound weird, but I do yoga and I, I love yoga. You can have nine people in my yoga studio at a time. Like this is ridiculous. There's usually like 35 people in my yoga studio at a time. So you got to go to that business and say, can you operate off of nine, 10, 11, 12 people per class? And if not, like you're going to take out some low interest loans, but we're going to make this a partnership, not a grant. So I, I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm, I'm callous, but we can't be on this grant mentality long term. It just creates a model that's not sustainable. Um, and then the other thing I'd mention is that we get to go back to some stuff that I know Cindy probably worked on a long time ago, which is remember when we actually consulted with small businesses and we walked them through the process of what it's like to be a small business and how to order their goods and services best ways to hire, how to deal with HR and the adjudication of legal and accounting issues. we got to go back to that stuff because these hardworking small businesses, you know what they've been doing for the last year, just trying to survive. That's what they'll say. I'm just trying to survive. Now we got to go in and go, okay, you survived. Now let's get your practices back in order. Let's get better accounting, better legal, better service, better training. And we got to go in on that level with them as opposed to just, here's a grant. Good luck. I hope you survive. It just doesn't work that way anymore. Which is really that technical assistance for small businesses, which I, right. I think is a great investment, you know, that cities could make with some of this money. And then we're also hearing, Toby, about small businesses who just can't seem to get workers hired. Mm -hmm. You know, it's hard for them to get people back to work. I don't know if that's the question just for you, Toby, or if generally. That's not my expertise, but I got, I'm sure I got an opinion, but that's not my expertise. But <laughs> it's a huge issue right now. We have it here. It is. We, we, we have two job openings and I can't find a single candidate. And I mean, a good salaried, full-time benefited job and I can't get a candidate. Mm -hmm. Not one candidate. Yes, I don't know if that's... <laughs> right, some partnerships with, you know, the um, Department of Labor's in each of the states, you know, trying to, job fairs. I mean, that might be something that a city could do, you know, with some of this money is actually to sponsor some job fairs. and. Yeah. maybe even promote the small businesses at that because you know job fairs happen for large corporations all the time when there's these large number of jobs available and so maybe it's a, a job fair for small businesses I mean that's just an idea that I have but if anyone else has any um, good ideas or best practice to share just send it through to us on the Q&A and we'll share it with everyone.
I did want to mention one thing. We're doing um, some work with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation right now on um, sort of the way in which communities engage with um, minority participants, like communities of color. And what we're and we're looking at it from a pure lending perspective. But as an offshoot of that, what we learned is that there's not a lot of meeting them where they are type of activities. You could have a job fair and probably 92% of the people that show up are going to be white. But, and, and I'm not suggesting like anything has been, is wrong with all this. It's just, are you going out and engaging the minority community? You know, there's distrust in our country right now and people are having a real hard time talking to each other because of these differences. But it's our jobs as governments to go out, find out, where in the black community there's a meetings about people and needing jobs and, and upward mobility and meet them where they are and say, how can we engage you in these job opportunities? And that's the one thing that I hope comes out of all of this is that communities change the way they engage. I, I heard from a community, a really great community that's like 45% African-American. So I, I assume they had a great like engagement process all of their loan deals come from referrals. They don't even go out into that black community and say, what's your business? What's your plan? Do you need staff? And I was so disappointed to hear that because I thought such highly of them to find out that they weren't actually meeting the minority communities where they are. Go out to your Latino communities, find out what their experience is right now and say, would you mind coming to this or can we bring it to you? Let's bring these jobs to you and, and get some training and get people into this. So it's, it's also about doing this as opposed to just, hey, we're gonna have, you know, gonna have a job fair. College kids will come, but I don't know if the rest of the community will. Yeah, uh, Jen, you have, a, you have a good story around that if you don't mind sharing, because it's exactly to your point, uh, Toby. And, and uh, Jen leads our, our small business support initiative. A lot of communities are recognized this and engaged us to help with their small businesses. And Jen is leading that and has a, Great. And that, that's our philosophy as well. Meet them where they are. And there is a lot of distrust among um, uh, entrepreneurs sometimes on how they can access this, these funds. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, Toby and, and um, our audience, you know, what we really heard is that um, exactly what you're saying, that a lot of business, business owners of color um, are not sure how to navigate um, these federal resources. There's a little bit of distrust, of course, and some fear. Um, and so, you know, we we worked with the business directly through our small business support program, and um, you know, learned that really with just some basic um, handholding and and connecting with existing programs and resources, and even just kind of coaching them through opportunities options, how their business can be nimble, partner with delivery services, maybe shift slightly their business model through some training, um, that there was hope, you know, for the first time in a long time throughout this pandemic. And so, like Lacey said, and really to re reiterate what you've been saying, it does take kind of an active role of the city to, to really reach out to those communities, whatever they might be, for engagement to have those conversations rather than just well, the information's posted on our website. Right. Yeah. Having conversations. I wanted to piggyback on that too. If I can piggyback on that for just a second. So as part of part of our study with Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, we were asked to just figure out kind of the three real or perceived reasons why African-Americans don't bank with mainline banking for, you know, business loans. And guys, I don't, I don't know these topics. So we did this study and the stuff that what came out was truck mistrust. Like if, if you're a black person and you know you're going to get rejected when you walk in the bank, why would you ever go in the bank? You know, like that was number one. The second one was that, you know, there was no one in that bank that looked like them or represented them, which was, you know, is, is obvious and disappointing. And the third one was that lack of engagement, right? It's, it, you know, they didn't, the banks don't reach out, the communities maybe don't reach out. So what we actually found through all this, and this is just, I tell everybody the statistic, I don't know why this just amazes me, but. African-Americans are the largest consumer of fintech. Like, think about that for a second. Why uh, financial technology? Ways in which to access and borrow money using technology. And it's because they don't have to go into a bank and ask anybody for approval of a loan. It's amazing. If I'm a community with a large African-American population and I want to get loans out to black businesses, I'm going to create a fintech model that's like, African-American financial service program. Like, this would be awesome. 
because it really knocks that barrier down and they're consumers of this product. So it makes a lot of sense. I just think it's like really neat stuff. So if I had some of this money and I was in a city, I'd think about programs that broke those barriers down that met those borrowers where they are, goes out to where they are. A lot of our immigrant community does not have um, access to the three-digit credit score. Well, let me tell you something. I don't evaluate people based on a three-digit credit score. It is a factor of evaluation, but it's not just, you know, the way you say loan or no loan. Let's look at character and let's look at their business plan. Let's look at their market. Let's look at things we can help them improve on to be a better business owner. That's how you evaluate it. And I'd be creating programs and solutions that actually meet those borrowers where they are, as opposed to just ask them to fit into your program. Sorry, I'm off my soapbox now. It's, it's a great recommendation. And that is very specifically the questions we're receiving is, okay, if we want to support small businesses, how do we structure it? And what you're recommending is set up a loan program, be intentional about reaching out to them, layer it with technical assistance um, to overcome that barrier of comfort and um, supply that access to capital, break down those um, walls. And that's a great recommendation. Um, for a lot of communities, I, I think the guidelines are that the funds need to be spent by 2024. And something Clarence Anthony really said was, I want, I want community leaders to get very creative on this and establish programs that they can then attract. And so we can use that case study of how that was well used and served as a, a catalyst for recovery and stability for the community. And so find those that were hardest hit, establish temporary programs that can be administered before 2024, be able to track them, but make sure that they have lasting impact. And, and he talked a lot about this idea and, and you've hit on it too. Broadband's so important and the physical infrastructure that our communities, community leaders often administer through roads, water, sewer, broadband, all these things are so incredibly important, but also layering that with elements that help the human infrastructure, the workforce, and, and you've hit on that as well, and continuing to stabilize with business retention and business recruitment. So we saw that several, there was a substantial drop, almost 30% in the number of new small business businesses that opened. So, so not only did a lot of small businesses close, the number annually year over year that opened dropped substantially. So um, encouraging not just saving what's there, but also encouraging new mm -hmm. uh, businesses to start new entrepreneurs as so many people have seen career changes. And I, I think that this has certainly been a time of disruption and reflection. And it's been fun to visit with people who have said, life's too short to not live out my dream. And their dream is to own that coffee shop or own the bakery or whatever it, it might be. And, and so the, you know, uh, guiding new potential entrepreneurs through opening is another layer uh, that we are hearing about and seeing. Are you hearing that or have any yeah, say, You guys might be experiencing this too. We're, we're starting to get a lot of feedback on um, sort of legacy businesses and mom, mom and pop are retiring and they got a little manufacturer or they got a little restaurant or they got three restaurants. They want to go down to Florida and enjoy the fun life. And maybe there's a young person in their 20s or 30s that would love to buy that business. We don't lend to that person right now. We have no, I mean, if I'm in a community, I go around and find out who's ready to transition. And if you are, when you decide to transition, come to us, come to the city or come to the development agency, and we're going to figure out how to do a transitional loan to this young person that wants to buy it. Or doesn't have to be a young person, you get my, my point, but like keep that business local, keep it open and let the next generation come through. Um, we do predict that that's going to be the biggest transition over the next 10 years is baby boomers selling businesses, younger baby boomers selling their businesses. And we want to make sure that young people have a chance to buy those. But we don't have a lot of programs in place right now that let that happen. So in communities with transitions, I think that's important. Um, I just wanted to address one question. Someone asked me about Yemeni or Bangladeshi um, people. I don't have any experience with that, but I do have an experience that might relate. So I didn't know this until about two years ago, but people of the Muslim faith are not allowed to pay interest on loans. Uh, this is something that I didn't know. And it baffled me. So I looked into it and found that if you're a Muslim, you're not allowed under Muslim law to pay interest. You can borrow money, but you can't pay interest. So you tell me, if you're a community that has a huge Muslim population, how the hell are you lending to those businesses? You're not. 
And so what we saw was Minneapolis created a really cool program. It's an alternative lending program for people of the Muslim faith that instead of paying interest, they pay a success fee at the end of the loan period, which would have been equivalent to what the interest payment was. Think about how stupid simple that is. Like if you got these populations of individuals with different value systems, different belief systems, different structures for borrowing, go out and find out what they are, what that barrier is, and then create a solution for them. I just think that's the way you got to think now. You can't just create something and expect everybody to work on it. And I think you got to be really sort of narrow-minded and targeted with your programs. I, I just wanted to mention that because Mara asked that question. That's a great, that's, that's a great example, a, a real life case study. So thank you so much for sharing that. There are so many questions coming up around this employment idea, the struggle of, of workforce. Any additional thoughts or comments on that that you would like to elaborate on? We have about four or five more minutes here, but you gave some, some good ideas and it just sparked a flood of additional questions around what kind of programs can help um, help these businesses find employees to hire or help develop workforce? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not a workforce specialist. I think I probably spoke too much, but I do think the thing you'd want to, end, you know, I would end on that comment is that this is the probably the greatest opportunity in my our lifetime, my lifetime for sure. I mean, the, the New Deal was the last time we even touched this kind of resource that's available to communities. So, you know, you got that Eminem song that's like, you only got one shot. Like, this is it. You got one shot here, folks. You've got the largest outlay of resources in the history of the government. So let's make it happen. You can be aggressive, get off the sideline, engage professionals, look at the whole life cycle of what's going on in your community. And I think this is the coolest part. And I'll end on this. We're not chasing BMW or Volvo or Toyota, or these big, huge 4,000-person manufacturers. We're chasing the small guys now. Let's save the five-employee company. Let's save our work-from-home people. Let's save our little coffee shops and our tradesmen. And all, this is the best thing that's ever happened to development finance because we're actually investing in our economy. That's the most important. Small businesses make up 99% of our, of our, of our, of our, oh, I'm sorry, there are 90% of our net new businesses every year. They employ, you know, 31 million micro enterprises. Like these things are immensely important. And now we're actually focusing on them, which I think is, is going to be awesome for our country. Gosh, thank you for sharing that. That's so encouraging. And it really, um, you make great points. So let's, let's get active, get on it, take it, take advantage of our one shot that we have right now. Um, there, there's a lot going on and it's really exciting and it, it can shape our cities differently. And, and the other point that you made that I, I think that really lights me up and, and I know it does a lot of community leaders we work with, because obviously I, I'm so grateful to our participants for our, our webinars, because they are the leaders in their communities that know that information is power and they're engaging in this information so that they can bring that back home and really make connections locally to keep their community strong. And so uh, you're, you're almost preaching to the choir right here about let's get active, get on it, work hard. We have one chance here to really maximize this once in a lifetime opportunity that will change our communities far into the future and change our business dynamics. So um, Toby, your resources are phenomenal on your website, your newsletters. Uh, what additional information? Um, definitely plug CDFA right now. Tell us all about you and how people can use you as a resource here going forward and your webinar series, all those things so that we can continue well, to empower them. No, I would just say um, we're, we're a mission-based nonprofit organization. We've been around 39 years. Um, all we want to do is help communities remove whatever barriers there are to capital, let them understand how capital works, and then ultimately draw them towards solutions that drive capital projects. We're agnostic to what your issues are. Well, they're your issues. They're your community. But we're going to help you the best we can. Just go to cdfa.net and check us out. Um, I, I always say we're a nonprofit because our mission is more important than anything. I've been here 17 years. We'll be here a long time after me, but our people are here to help. We want it, we answer the phone, we talk to you. We're like a community. And so please reach out. Um, you know, It might not be me that helps you, but it'll be one of my other great 15 people that helps you. But we just, uh, we encourage you all to use our resources. 
Um, and, and just hopefully we create a friendship and, and we'll be able to be engaged for a long time. And really, honestly, I've known Cindy. I think, Cindy, we've known each other 20, I think it's 20 years this year. So um, it's awesome to be able to be invited to this. And, and Jen and Lacey, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you, Toby. You shared a great deal of insight. It was so beneficial. Um, any closing comments, Jen or Cindy? I think we, uh, I know that there are probably some unanswered questions. And so I will say that um, we'll take a look at those and, you know, see if we can get some responses out to you on what those are. And, um, you know, if you have additional questions that you didn't get a chance to ask, go ahead and email us those questions. And if we don't know the answers, we'll try to find it for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it sounds like our next uh, webinar needs to be about workforce development. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Thank you, Toby. This has just been awesome. Thank you, Cindy and Jen and, and Yvette to you and our audience. So thank you. Uh, we, you will receive the email with the recording of this and a resource guide as well. So thank you so much. I'll keep working hard and, and let's keep building each other up. Thank you. Bye.